0: KYW Radio Original Podcasts. The Supreme Court recently reversed affirmative action with regards to colleges and universities ending race-conscious admissions. It's a complicated decision. One could argue it is a decision that seems to want to operate in a world where race is no longer an issue. But according to a poll from the Washington Post, more than 6 in 10 Americans support banning the use of race and ethnicity in admissions.
1: Americans favor diversity in education, but they don't like quota systems, and they don't seem to understand that none of these schools are using quota systems. Dr.
0: Susan Lee Bell is a professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. Past the immediate ramifications, she says a ripple effect of the decision could be if people take it seriously, it might help to address some of the disparities in our educational system.
1: Well, One of the things that elite colleges do is they judge you whether you took calculus. Well, guess what? You can't take calculus in a lot of schools in the United States, rural schools, and a lot of the schools where underrepresented minorities go. They don't have it.
0: I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio in depth, we take a deeper look into the Students for Fair admissions case and talk about what this means for the future of college admissions. So, to start, kind of what was argued. In this case before the, the Supreme Court, I know the, the group that brought this, Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., and it put uh, policies at UNC and Harvard on the table?
1: Yeah, so this is an organization not made up of students. Uh, it's a not-for-profit, well-funded. There weren't any students that testified or any students that said they were harmed by these policies. But the case looks like this. The organization is claiming that both Harvard and UNC inappropriately use race in their admissions practices in a way that violates the U.S. Constitution. Uh, What happens at Harvard and at UNC is that there are about 40 criteria that they use. This can be like musical instruments, where you live, whether you're first generation, whether you're a recruited athlete, And also, you can check a box that says, I'm an underrepresented minority. That's voluntary. And if you do check it, like all those other criteria, they are weighed. And what Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. argued was that that was an unconstitutional discrimination against white and Asian American students.
0: And this was a case, it really felt like most people knew what this outcome was going to be before we... We heard the decision, and it ended up being uh, the conservative bloc voting together 6-3 in the UNC case. I guess it was 6-2 in the Harvard case because uh, Justice Jackson recused herself because of uh, her work at Harvard. What did the justices do here? Like, tell, Take us through the path that got to the decision.
1: So as you say, this was a sort of foregone conclusion. Know in advance what this court will do, in part because they're not following the precedent. They're following their beliefs. And most of these justices have been in dissents before in which they have come out against affirmative action. So there's no no surprise here. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion. That's interesting. It's his prerogative to assign it to himself. But it's curious that he didn't assign it to the most senior justice on the court, Clarence Thomas, who's the second black justice in the history of the nation. But I think Roberts had a reason for that, as we'll discuss, Thomas's um, concurrence is rather unhinged. And I think Roberts wanted something as calm as, as possible. So he said that these admissions programs violated the Equal Protection Clause, which says that you can't deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. And he said that both of the admissions programs weren't sufficiently focused and measurable to warrant the use of race, uh, that they unavoidably employed race in a negative manner and involved racial stereotyping that caused continued hurt and injury. And he said that both programs lacked a meaningful endpoint and therefore they were unconstitutional. His opinion depends on what does the 14th Amendment mean? And he insists that it means that we have to be colorblind. And for him, colorblind means that we cannot help a group who has been historically discriminated against. Roberts sort of framed this as what the people who wrote the 14th Amendment wanted, that they didn't want to remediate the effects of enslavement for newly freed Black Americans. He also talked about Brown versus Board of Ed and said that decision was also trying to create a colorblind society, not remediating anything. And he focused on this idea that when the government uses race, they have to apply strict scrutiny. And that means there has to be a compelling interest. And he said that alleviating the effects of societal discrimination is not a compelling interest that the court can go to look at. And lastly, he said that we have to uh, only use affirmative action to the extent that it helps everyone. So when the court in the Backey case in 1978 first ruled in favor of affirmative action, it said we do so on only one ground, that it, it creates a diverse educational environment for the benefit of all students. And so Roberts said, look, I'm being consistent with precedent. I'm not overturning anything, but we just can't continue this. There has to be an end, he really emphasized that. And he made two really strange exceptions at the end without a lot of detail. One of them was that the military academies don't have to do this and that the colleges and universities could, in fact, read a student essay in which a student talks about race as part of their life, as, you know, connected to their development of their grit or overcoming adversity. So it, he it rejected thinking about students as part of a group. But he said that they could be treated as individuals who had, um, whose race mattered in in how you understood the the student holistically.
0: Isn't the idea of looking at things through the lens of colorblind? I think that's great in an intellectual exercise where everybody should be looked at equally, and we should take okay, great. But that's not the real world. That's not a world where you know, people of color have had to travel uphill in society for centuries. And I mean, it seems like it's naive by choice to kind of act like you're being above the idea of any racial bias, but, but all you're doing is really, you know, kind of reinforcing it because you're putting people back on the uneven ground that was unfair to start with.
1: Well, that's basically what Justice Sotomayor said, which was that the court was cementing what she called a superficial rule of colorblindness, and and what she said was that context matters, and that society remains inherently unequal, and because of that, it is in fact a compelling state interest for colleges and universities to think about whether or not we create a diverse pool for leadership in all walks of life and she said like society remains particularly unequal in terms of of education and and she tried to show that the 14th amendment and brown versus board of education were not about color blindness she called that blind to american history and she said the 14th amendment was absolutely about re mediating the effects of enslavement. It was a race conscious effort, she says. And she pushes back on some of the history that is in both Justice Thomas and Justice Roberts' decision, which is kind of sketchy about the Freedmen's Bureau. Justice Thomas tries to say the Freedmen's Bureau wasn't because people were black. It was because they were free from enslavement, as if those are two separate things in the United States. And she finds that you know, really objectionable. And she lists out, you know, the kinds of situations that is still there. And and she takes the majority to term on overturning a precedent written by Justice O'Connor in 2003 and just says, you're making things up and you're just doing what you want to do because you have six votes is her implication and one part of the opinion. And she looks at the practical Affects Michigan and California both ended affirmative action. And she shows how the University of Michigan went from 14% people of color to 4%, uh, similar numbers at, at Berkeley. You know, and she rakes the majority, especially the concurrence by Thomas over the coals, because of sources and saying, like, these are your feelings about stigmatization, but you don't have numbers that that will actually prove this. So she, like you said, is saying the court is ignoring reality.
0: We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Susan Lee Bell right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio In-Depth continuing our conversation with Dr. Susan Lee Bell, professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. You know, when you have these major cases overturning precedent and stuff like that, a lot of these, it seems like the idea is here's the end game. Here's where we are. By whatever means necessary, we will thread together any kind of an argument to get there. And that is really seems like bad law to me as a non-lawyer and a non-political science person. It just it opens up Pandora's box of stuff.
1: I think there's no doubt that the Supreme Court is very emboldened. 6-3 is a big majority. And um, as I think we've talked about before, there's no moderate on the court. So these are six very conservative justices with no middle. So it's interesting not to have a justice such as a Sandra Day O'Connor, who is willing to push back. Sometimes people refer to Roberts as a a moderate, and he is no such thing. He does care about perception. He does try, in this opinion, to say, we're going by the precedents. But Justice Thomas says, actually, we're overturning the precedent. And Thomas did the same thing in the abortion decision last year. Roberts said, like, we're not overturning uh, birth control. And Thomas said, like, we're overturning same-sex marriage and birth control. Let me tell you what we're up to. I do think the difference on this one, Matt, is that Americans tend to agree with the six in this case. Whereas with abortion and guns, the six is way out of whack with American belief. In this case, Americans don't like affirmative action. And it's hard because if you word the question differently, you get different results. So Americans favor diversity in education. They want their children to go to diverse environments to learn. But they don't like quota systems and they don't seem to understand that none of these schools are using quota systems. They don't seem to understand that only 6% of American schools even use this. These are the most elite schools in the United States who use this kind of system. Uh, Recent New York Times polls show that seven out of 10 Americans say race shouldn't be a factor in college admissions, and six out of 10 out of Democrats will say the same thing. So that's the difference here, is that I agree with you that the way this is being done is illegitimate. The use of history, the kind of playing with Brown versus Board of Ed, which is very cringy. When you have people saying, "You know, Thurgood Marshall supports my position that race is irrelevant," that's that's mind blowing. But I don't think Americans are going to get as upset about the procedure in getting to the decision because I think, in general, they agree. And it's going to take a long time to figure out what this looks like, what do campuses look like, and what effect does this have in other sectors.
0: If you can put it in the essay rather than just check a box, you're still providing the information, just the vehicle is different. So could we end up seeing maybe when we look back on this five, six, ten years from now that it ends up having a minimal effect because the message was getting across just in a way that the Supreme Court didn't want to, you know, made sure it didn't couldn't go through Avenue A, it went through Avenue B.
1: I agree. I think the end paragraph of this uh and the one footnote about the military academies really muddies the decision. And this may be why, in fact, Chief Justice Roberts wanted to write the decision and not Thomas, because Thomas's concurrence has no so such exceptions. He doesn't talk about military academies as an exception. He doesn't talk about essays. So, I think what Roberts does at the very end here is really make a suggestion that there is a way around this. there are there are proxies. He says you can't do indirectly what the Constitution forbids directly. So what does that mean? Does that mean you could use uh, zip codes as proxies? Could you use other proxies such as income levels, socioeconomic factors? We should be clear. This decision still leaves open things like outreach programs. You can still go recruit at schools, uh, pipeline programs. And that is what Michigan and California have used. But I should say California has spent $500 million to try to encourage more people to apply. And so the question is whether all states will have such a commitment to diversity. And what these numbers will look like. One of the things that Justice Jackson and Justice Sotomayor do is list out where we get people from in terms of uh, CEOs. So uh, Justice Jackson talks about that 1% of the Fortune 500 CEOs are people of color. She also talks about lawyers. Very few lawyers in the United States are people of color, and this will affect law school admissions that. Law is worse than dentistry. It's worse than medicine. And law matters a great deal because the judges and the lawyers who represent people are more sympathetic and more understanding of problems that they are faced or that their families are faced or they have some knowledge of.
0: And you referenced it in that answer to the the military academies. And I know the chief justice didn't really provide a lot of clarity. Do we have any idea why this was different? Do the military academies have a system in place that, you know, takes care of this without utilizing quote-unquote affirmative action, or is it kind of a, I don't quite know what this is all about?
1: Roberts just said in light of the potentially distinct interests, so about as vague as he could be, however, he did have what's called a friend of the court, an amicus brief from the military academies, and they said, we have been using programs very similar to UNC and Harvard's, this is how we are creating a diverse leadership pool so that our officers in all the branches of the military are representative of the armed forces and that this is crucial to people taking orders and for the military to look legitimate. So we have in the brief all sorts of reasons why, but those are very, very similar to the reasons that Harvard and UNC gave, because they're saying that their interests are training future leaders, acquiring new knowledge bases based on diverse outlooks, so and, and preparing people for these leadership positions. And it's kind of funny, Matt, like eight of the nine justices on the Supreme Court went to Harvard or Yale for law school. So we can just see the kind of effect these elite educational organizations that only affect maybe 6% of the population, but they perf- they do affect a lot of the people who are at these higher positions, like justices on the Supreme Court. In the end, this could maybe have less of an impact
0: than we think. Am I being too Pollyanna? But it just seems like there's enough trap doors here where if schools want to get from A to B, they can get there, it just might look different? I
1: think it's a Rorschach test. I think if you don't want a lot of diversity and inclusion, and we see a lot of legislation being passed in the United States that says we can't have diversity and inclusion uh, programs in state government or local government, if, if you're in that camp even though this decision did not speak directly to the actions of corporations or government hiring agencies or or businesses hiring, the Supreme Court ruling affects public discourse. And it may make some organizations timid about diversity policies if they were on the fence. It may embolden people who want to ignore diversity. And for those, uh, as you're describing, who want to create diverse campuses like unc and harvard yes they have been given a a possible other approach which is to just consider each student individually and not have it be in any way one of the 40 things they're looking for but somehow able to be considered nonetheless what that will look like is very hard to know and we only have the results from michigan and berkeley which were not very good but the experience of Michigan and, and California should be helpful to the other institutions who are looking to make changes.
0: I would imagine a lot of these places aren't starting from ground zero when it comes to trying to rebuild or, or you know, change this.
1: No, I, I look, I think that when you look at this opinion, you can really see how um, uh, people split on this. You know, Roberts is saying, it's demeaning of your dignity to be judged by your ancestry. Meanwhile, you have people like Sotomayor and Jackson saying, I'm perfectly happy to be judged by my ancestry. My ancestry speaks to overcoming discrimination and also trying to point out like it's not neutral. You know, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Roberts, they were also affected by their race going forward. I think a lot of people, so that split is is reproduced in the universities. And everyone has known this was coming. You're you're correct. There's no way anybody's surprised by this. I do think they were surprised potentially to see Roberts explicitly give them a, a way forward that six justices signed on to. So that's really good. And I think that even people who support affirmative action, I think, would say. That pipeline programs, other forms of encouragement are great, and they can have really good effects. And so were people to take this decision very seriously, it could lead to, I don't know, talking about the disparities in schooling in the United States. For example, one of the things that elite colleges do is they judge you whether you took calculus. Well, guess what? You can't take calculus in a lot of schools in the United States. Rural schools and a lot of the schools where underrepresented minorities go, they don't have it so you don't qualify. So maybe we can get to the root of some of the ways in which people are excluded. It's going to be a really rough few years, especially for people applying to law schools, medical schools, and college.
0: One of the things that's fascinating is kind of on the other end of this, we heard a lot of people, you know, and rightfully say, it's interesting that we're going in this direction, but nobody seems to care about legacy that people can get in just because their parents went in or their grandparents get in. And I got to be honest, I didn't think that was still a thing. I thought that was like out with the Roosevelt's. Like if you have problems with affirmative action, I would hope you have problems with that as well. It does seem like a lot of schools are taking a hard look at that and maybe talking about it for the first time. Cause like I said, I like to consider myself pretty learned and follow history and all. I didn't think the legacy thing was still a thing.
1: That's how George W. Bush went to Yale, <laughs> and legacy uh, plays an important part at some schools. Some schools fill their early action with legacy students. Some some schools don't. So there's real differences there. But I think the m- most important piece is that Justice Jackson brought this up in the decision. She said, "Listen, think about John and James. Think about one of them. They both went to North. Ca- they both lived in North Carolina for six generations." One of them has six generations that attended UNC and the other person was enslaved. And in fact, UNC didn't open their doors to them until late in the 20th century. So how can you compare the two of them and say that you're being colorblind? And so I I think she's really getting at that legacy isn't just about like having had money to go to Yale. It's also about the fact that Yale didn't allow in women, Yale didn't allow in Jews, Yale didn't allow in lots of groups. And so therefore, families did not amass that kind of connection. Wesleyan just declared, I think, a couple of days ago that they will no longer be doing legacy. And there is a court case now coming through about legacy making the claim that legacy just means that you were one of the likely white male and probably Protestant, depending on the university, students that were allowed to come. I mean, I I think what's most important to me in reading through the 237 pages of this decision over this past week is that Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Thomas, and Roberts all write. Thomas writes as if his race is an issue. And the other three, as white men right as if it's neutral. But it's not neutral. Much of what it is they have, according to Justice Jackson, in terms of wealth in the United States, building wealth, being able to own property, is a product of this complicated racial history that we have to continually come back to, no matter how learned you are, right? Is to just figure out these rules and and what it is we do about them next.
0: So this has been... Focused on higher education. One of the reasons it's important to talk about these cases, and one of the reasons I love talking to you is because a lot of times they are kind of, they can transport into other things that people don't see from the headlines. Like, it's very, oh, that doesn't, you know, agree, disagree, that doesn't affect me at all. Does this decision lay foundations for changes in the corporate world, in other worlds where they can use these are where these arguments could be used to try to, you know, kneecap diversity in, in those realms.
1: There's nothing in the words of the document that was came out from the court. And none of the 237 pages say that this stops any company from uh, using diversity as something it's looking for in its work environment. Nobody can use quotas. Like just to be clear, like that's not possible. But you are allowed to look at two similarly situated candidates and say, we have an all-male law firm and we have two candidates and they're equal. And we're going to pick the woman because one of our goals is diversity. That's still allowed. And uh, the only thing that happens is that in the back of people's minds, there is this question of legitimacy and whether or not the Supreme Court is, is hinting that that's not necessary, that what you need to do is be, is be colorblind. And figuring out what that means is quite difficult. But it could mean in the case of the all-male uh, law firm and the female candidate that perhaps that female candidate has one small thing that's different from the male candidate. And the question is, whether or not you would override that in this for this other reason. And I think, Matt, the polls show, and I would say that my working with students over the past 25 years also shows is an increasing awareness that nobody wants, or very few people want to go into a workplace that isn't representative, that doesn't challenge them to think differently, and they want their children, most people, to attend schools that will give them exposure to that. That doesn't mean that when it comes to getting into Harvard, they don't want their child to get in. And I think that's, that's the impetus that you get in this case of the students for fair admissions.